Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. This is not the message that I intended on preaching this morning, but I do believe it's the mind and heart of God, and so we're going to try to obey the Lord this morning. Uh, you may be wondering what happened to that series we started last week. Well, that's why I don't call them series, amen? Uh, but we do have we do have a message on Zadok the priest that's going to get preached here probably before too long. Uh, we've not abandoned that, and I do want to spend some time there. But God laid this message on on my heart, and and uh, I was going to preach the other. But I found when God says something different, it's best to just go with the Lord. Second Kings chapter eighteen. If you are a student of the Bible, uh, then you find yourself standing inside the walls of Jerusalem while an Assyrian army is outside of the walls and the gates. And you hear the sound of uh, a man by the name of Rabshakeh, who is a general for the Assyrian army, whose sole task it is to come and harass and berate and to try to coerce the children of Israel into abandoning the battle and instead swearing loyalty and fealty to the emperor of Assyria. The Bible says in verse 17 of Second Kings chapter 18, the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsuris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shetna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust on him. But if ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Uh, Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be here. Help us as we study Your Word, uh, that it would not just be an academic exercise, Lord, but that it would be a moment of surrender in our lives, a moment of self-examination, a moment when we are willing to face hard truths about ourselves and, and willing to answer difficult questions that the Spirit of God may pose us, and a moment of total honesty with You. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, and I don't know anyone's heart, Lord, but... I pray that You would work in their heart and life. Show them their need of Christ before it's too late. And may Christ get the glory in all that takes place today. We know He deserves it. He's do it. He's precious to us, Lord. He's so good to us. I pray that You'd help us to honor Him today in all that's done. For it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. As we said in 2 Kings chapter number 18, there is a moment of great tenseness and of great crisis for the children of Israel. There is literally a global superpower with their army parked right outside the gate. And this global superpower, Assyria, who has already left in its wake untold numbers of nations and of armies, has now marched its way to their front steps and is threatening them, is menacing them. 
And the process through which they do this is they send a man by the name of Rabshakeh. Now, one of the things that becomes apparent about Rabshakeh, we know he is a general in this army, but he seems to be the spokesman for the uh, king of Assyria. It is his job to try and go and do with words what they want to not have to do with weapons. Uh, In other words, he's uh, come to try to bully them, to try to coerce them, to try to convince them to give up the battle before the first arrow has been fired, before the first sword has been drawn. Uh, This had worked with many other countries before they ever arrived here. And so they had risen to a place of uh, supremacy on the world stage. But we find that when they roll up on the gates of Jerusalem, there's something that they're not expecting. Uh, the uh, king of Assyria uh, begins to, uh, he, he sends Rabshka and Rabshka begins to talk about all the gods that they've thrown down. One of the things that they did not understand is all those other gods were false gods. They had just rolled up on the front step of the true God of all creation. And so as we read this story, I am, I am impressed, I am struck by the attempt by Rabshka to try to talk them out of their place of superiority, militarily speaking. His whole goal is to try to convince them, to coerce them, to get them to just give up and quit trusting in the God of Israel. Can I say to you this morning, likewise, you and I are consistently faced with similar choices in our life. Uh, If you make up your mind to serve God, I I promise you there will be opposition that shows up. If you resolve to live for the Lord, to do right, to live righteously, your flesh will have a problem with that. Uh, Society will have a problem with that. It's possible your friends or your family may have a problem with that. And I tell you this, the devil himself has a problem with that. And he will do everything he can to try to ride up on your front porch and talk you out of serving God, out of living for the Lord, out of taking a stand for the truth of the Word of God. Did you hear carefully what Rabshakeh said in verse number 23? He says, Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. In other words, he says, All you have to do is raise the white flag and walk out of that city. And here I have a horse waiting for you. It's saddled up, it's fed, it's been watered, it's been brushed, everything is ready. All you have to do is yield and walk away, and I've got a horse for you to ride away from all this mess uh, that you're facing. Can I say that in your life and mine, the devil will always have a horse for us to ride away on. You say, preacher, what are these horses? Well, we find as we study through there, there was a, a literal horse In my mind, you know what they remind me of? They remind me of all of the excuses the devil gives us to quit serving God. Rabshakeh takes several different tactics and strategies in trying to talk them out of their position and out of their resolve. And you know, I found in your life and mine, when we make a decision to live for God, the devil's going to come along and there are times he'll show up and he'll just try with brute force to bully us. But you know, very often he will give us all manner of excuses why it's okay for us to quit on God, to quit living for God, to walk away from the Lord, to walk away from our commitments, to walk away from our convictions. I've often said before that the devil is never short on excuses. If you need an excuse to quit on God, he'll make sure that you have one. We're getting ready to come up to revival this week, and here's going to be my plug for revival during this sermon. Be there. Be there. (laughs) I promise you this will be the week everything goes sideways. 
Uh, you're going to have to make up your mind to be there on purpose. Some of you could finish what I'm about to say because the devil will make sure you don't show up by accident. And you'll find that all this week, every single day, there'll be a new steed sitting right outside of your office, right outside of your house, right out of sight of your place of business, just waiting for you to climb on and ride away and not come and get help in this meeting this week. Parents that are trying to raise kids, and I, uh, I'm one of them, <laughs> I'm trying, amen, by the Lord's grace and help, uh, hopefully we will. Can I tell you, the devil will always have a horse there ready for you to compromise your principles in parenting. There will always be somebody that will clap for you when you do wrong. There will always be somebody that is pleased with your compromise. There will always be some excuse why though you know it is true, though you know it is right, it is acceptable in your mind and to your flesh to walk away from the truth that God has revealed unto you. You see, the devil will always have horses for you to ride upon. I want to preach to you on that thought. Horses for them that will ride. This story really begins uh, in the beginning of this chapter. We find our text in verse number 17. That's where we picked up. But if you really want to know when this event happened or when it began to transpire, when the events took place that prompted all this, you'd have to go back to the first part of the chapter. Look what it says back at chapter number 18, verse number 1. The Bible says this, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old when he began to reign. And he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Now notice what it says. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. The first thing we see in this chapter is the resolve of King Hezekiah. You see, every conflict, every confrontation, every opposition that the believer experiences, spiritually speaking, always begins with the commitment that they make to serve God in a greater capacity. Can I tell you, you're not going to make up your mind to serve God and the devil not have something to say about it. This begins when a king decides he's going to live his life for the glory of God. He's not going to go the way that men before him have gone. He's not going to go the way that men around him have gone. He's making up his mind that no matter what anyone else does, he's going to serve God and give his whole heart to God and give his whole life to God. And whenever you make your mind up that you're going to serve God, mark her down sooner or later, the devil's going to come along and have something to say about it. I see his commitment that he made. What kind of commitment did he make? Well, the Bible says in verse number three that he, he did right in the sight of the Lord. What does that look like? Look at verse number four. How did he make this commitment? The Bible says he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For under those days did the children of Israel burn incense to it and called it uh, Nehushtan. In other words, uh, we see that he made a commitment in regards to his cleansing. He said, we're going to get all this idolatry out of the kingdom. We're going to get all of this unrighteousness out of the kingdom. Can I say that when a person purposes something in their heart, it will soon show evidence in their life. Hezekiah made his mind up to serve God, and the first step that that required was him stepping out and saying, there's some mess in this kingdom that we need to get rid of. Uh, I wonder if there's anything in your life that if you get right with God, you're going to have to get rid of. I wonder if there's anything in your life, you know, some of these things, and it's interesting, it's in my message, I ain't going to dwell on it. I mean, this is my message, don't get nervous, but... But this isn't the point of my message, uh, and so I'm not going to dwell on it. But notice the two different kinds of idolatry that he expelled. He broke down groves and he uh, tore down graven images, but he also broke down that brazen serpent. You know that brazen serpent, Brother Ken, at one time was ordained of God. 
never to be worshipped as God, but it had a function, it had a purpose. You remember in the children of Israel in the book of Numbers when they were bitten with the serpents because they complained. That's a good object lesson, not complain. God will send snakes after you, amen? But uh, they, they began to murmur and complain. And so uh, God sent these fiery serpents that bit them and, and they began to die. And He told Moses, if you make this brazen serpent and put it on a pole, uh, they can look at it. And if they'll look at it in faith, trusting what I have said, I will heal them. Of This had been a good thing at one time. You know, I found idolatry in our lives typically takes two forms. It takes the form of things that we know are wrong and are sinful. But in secondary, it takes the form of things that maybe are not wrong in and of themselves but they have been elevated to a place that they do not belong. The Bible says they burned incense unto this serpent. In other words, they were worshiping it like it was a god. Hezekiah said, if we're going to live for God, we're going to have to get rid of those things. There might be things in your life that if you're going to live for God, you're going to have to get rid of. I, I, listen, I know there's a, there, there's a spirit and a movement in Christianity today that suggests that our consecration to God does not bear at all on our actual conduct, that it's merely some sort of spiritual state and frame of mind. But i got news for you. God didn't just uh, save you to pardon you. He saved you to purify you. He didn't just save you to give you a home in heaven. He saved you to give you a holiness in your heart and in your life. And Hezekiah says, if I'm going to live for God, I'm going to have to get rid of these things. Not only that, verse 5 says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after Him was none like Him among the kings, all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before Him. For He clave to the Lord and departed not from following Him, but kept His commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. So He he makes this commitment in regards to cleansing, but also in regards to cleaving. He says, I'm going to get everything clean in my life, but then after I do, I'm going to make my mind up to live for God. I'm going to stay close to God. In other words, he stayed in an intimate relationship with God. He fellowshiped with God. He prayed to God. He worshipped God. He heard from God. And can I say in our lives, if we want God to get victory, it's not enough just to be clean. We've got to be close to. There are a great many. Hey, listen, most of the Jehovah's Witnesses are clean, but they don't know God. The Mormons are clean, but they don't know God. The Amish are clean, but they don't know God. In other words, it's not enough just to be clean, man. You've got to be close. You've got to know God personally. And in our life, listen, there's a lot of people that I know, Christians, that are clean in the way that they live, uh, but they're not close to the Lord in the way that they live. So not only in cleansing and cleaving, uh, but look at verse number 7. The Bible says this, And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever uh, he went. And I like this. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not not only in cleansing and cleaving, but in consecration as well. Uh, if you're going to serve one king, you can't serve the other king. You remember whenever he rolls up onto their gates, Rapshka says, why are you withstanding? So speaketh the great king. And then he says the king of Assyria. In other words, the king of Assyria said, I'm the great king and there ain't no king but me. Well, now that's interesting. If I read my Bible right, Brother Charlie... The king of kings says, I'm the great king, and there is no other king. Well, the Bible says you can't serve two masters. Uh, it's impossible. And uh, Hezekiah, he made his mind up. Uh, part of the, the, the reality, part of the, the cause and source of the deep schism in Christianity today, we can't make up our mind which king we want to serve. We can't make up our mind who really has the authority in our life. If we're going to live for God, we're going to have to make up our mind that He's the king. The devil doesn't get jurisdiction in our life. The world doesn't get jurisdiction in our life. The flesh don't get jurisdiction in our life. He's our king. And we're going to bow before him and him alone. I like this, man. Hezekiah was a rebel, but he was a rebel with a cause. He was a rebel in the right direction. 
Uh, you know, some of us, listen, if you're like me, I'm naturally a rebel. I mean, you know, if you tell me to go that way, I want to go that way. If you tell me to face that way, I want to look that way. That's my nature. You say, preacher, what do you do about that? You take that nature and turn it to the glory of God. Uh, it's okay to be a rebel, but don't be a rebel against God. Be a rebel against this world and against this system of sin uh, that is so pervasive. Not only in consecration, but in conquering. Verse number 8, it says, He smote the Philistines, even unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, with the tower, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. In other words, Hezekiah was a fighter. And I would say, anybody that's close to God will be a fighter. Anybody that's close to God will be a fighter. Anybody that is committed for God to get the victory in their life, they're not going to disengage from spiritual warfare. They're not going to run away from the spiritual battles that we face. And I'll tell you, you might as well make your mind up that if you're going to live for God, you're going to have to face opposition, spiritually speaking. You're going to have to persecute and afflict the flesh. You're going to have to face being unpopular. You're going to have to deal with being the ideological minority in the crowd. There might have been a time in this country uh, where we could appreciate and depend on the fact that everybody agreed with us. I got news. Them days is gone. Them days is gone. If you really are serious about serving God, you're going to find yourself in the minority. You're not going to find a group of people that are proud and pleased. You're going to have to make your mind up that you're willing to face opposition. So in conquering, I, I see the commitments he made. I see the companions he lost. Verse number 11, the Bible says the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Halah and in Haber by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed His covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded and would not hear them nor do them. Now, remember in Israel's history at this time, they are two separate kingdoms. There are the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. They are two different kingdoms at this point. And whenever uh, Hezekiah resolves that he's going to live for God and serve God, what we find is in that same season, that same period of time, because of the northern kingdom, Israel's disobedience to God, God sends the Assyrians to come and to uh, judge them and to annihilate them. So in other words, during his tenure as king, his companions to the north all of a sudden are gone. They're gone because they've disobeyed God. They're gone because of the judgment of God. And let me just say, if you and I commit to live for the Lord, we're going to lose some companions. Uh, there's going to be some folks who won't walk with us no more. There's going to be some folks that are taken out of our life that aren't a part uh, of, of our walk and our life anymore. I've often heard people say, you know, preacher, I just don't know about, about really going all in for God, living for God, because well, what will my friends think? And I've had people say things like this, I don't know... If, if it comes to choose between my friends and between the Lord, I don't know if I can choose the Lord. I don't know if I can really keep that commitment. Can I encourage you? Uh, they'll choose for you. If you decide to start living for God and you're serious about it, and there's somebody in your life that don't belong there, that God doesn't want there, you won't have to separate from them. They'll separate from you. It won't be long. I see the companions he lost. I see the confrontation he met. Verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. In other words, it wasn't long before the enemy was knocking at his door. And when you decide to serve God, it won't be long before the enemy will be knocking at your door. If you thought that this thing of being a disciple of Christ uh, meant all peace and harmony and unity and uh, roses and, and butterflies and just everybody was just going to be so pleased and just, I mean, proud as pudding that you're living for God. I'm sorry somebody lied to you. I'm sorry somebody lied to you. Jesus did not lie to you. He said if a man's going to follow me, he's going to have to take up his cross. He said if a man's going to follow me, he can't look back. <laughs> he said if a man's going to follow me, he has to forsake all. 
So whoever told you that you could have your cake and eat it too, I'm sorry they lied to you, but God never has. He's always been abundantly clear that being a disciple of Christ, living for God, uh, meant opposition. He said, I'm not come to send peace, I'm come to send a sword. And the fact is, when you make up your mind to serve God, the devil will do everything he can to stop you. You want to feel like an important person? Serve God. You'll have all hell paying attention to you. Uh, you want to feel like an important person? Start serving God. The devil himself will set up and take notice of it. Uh, I see the confrontation that he met, but then I see the concessions he granted. Now, Hezekiah's been doing real good up until this moment. He's been living for God. He's been cleaning out the kingdom. He's been getting his life right. He's made commitments to God that he's not going to turn back on. And then all of a sudden, Assyria shows up at his door. And the Bible says this in verse number 14, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me that which thou puttest on me, I will bear. In other words, we see the concessions that he granted. Hezekiah did the one thing you don't do. He gave an inch to the devil. He let the enemy have just an inch. And pretty soon, the king of Assyria wanted the whole kingdom. This is so paramount, and this is why it is so easily misunderstood. People, people have, uh, people treat preachers like they're fanatics. Uh, people treat preachers like they're, they're living in a fantasy because sometimes we preach on stuff and, and the world laughs at it and, and treats it like it's a light thing and, and your flesh may even laugh at, well, what's a big deal if we do this? Or what's the big deal if we do that? What's the big deal if I let my kids do this? What's the big deal if I take my family to this or to that? And here's what we're trying to get you to understand. Uh, most people that get all messed up, get out of church, get out of living for God, it didn't happen because they decided to make some catastrophic big decision. It happened because they gave an inch. They gave an inch. They set a precedent in their life and gave an inch. And that's what Hezekiah does. He should have told him to pound sand. He should have said, you got no right to come in here and ask anything of me. I don't worship your pagan gods. I don't follow your pagan rules. If you want it, come and take it. But instead... He makes concessions. What did he, what did he do? Well, we see number one is confession. He says this, I have offended. Now that was true. What he should have followed that up with is, and I don't care. I have offended you, I see. Good. <laughs> I don't want to be on the same side of things as you. Listen, if we're worried about hurting the devil's feelings, our life's all but gone. And part of the problem in modern day Christianity is we spend so much time terrified that we're going to offend the world's sensibilities. A, a world that wholesale murders unborn children. A world that, that violates, corrupts, and pollutes the very concepts of how God created mankind in His image. A world that hates God and denies Him and loathes anything that, that has any, any vestige of God's person and God's character and God's nature. And that's the crowd we're afraid of offending. It's amazing to me, and, and, and I'm just going to say this and move on. i got too much sermon to preach to get bogged down here. But the same church growth gurus that were writing books 30 years ago are still writing them today, Charlie. Now, if, if this whole thing of compromising with the world to draw them in worked, why are they still writing books? Why are they still giving seminars? Why are they still coming up with new theories and new strategies? Uh, the only thing that it's done is sell a lot of books. It ain't changed the basic formula of what the church of the living God is supposed to be and what the Bible says it's supposed to be. Uh, listen, this whole concept of we need to raise the white flag, we need to become like the world to draw the world, uh, even if that worked, what would we have accomplished? 
uh, listen, God has, has saved us to save us from the corruption of the world. That's why, that's why He changed us. That's why He gave us the gospel. That's why He redeemed us is to save us from the corruption that's in the world. What good is it if we take the corruption and bring it into the house of God and call it church? In other words, we see that He, he made the mistake of, of admitting wrong when He was not wrong. He hadn't done anything wrong. Listen, I think if you're wrong, you ought to admit that you're wrong. I don't very often, but if you're wrong, you ought to admit that you're wrong. Amen? But I'd say this, if you're right, you ought to stand on truth. You ought to stand on truth. I see his confession. Number two, I see his cost. The Bible says the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, it's not saying he gave it. It's saying he required it. And can I say this? I see not only his confession, I see his cost. Because it always costs you something to listen to the devil. It always costs you something to let sin in your life. The devil, I know he swears to you uh, that all the fun and pleasure that sin can afford, you can have free of charge. But he's a liar from the beginning. There's always a cost to letting him have his way. And by the way, it's rarely an upfront cost. It's usually somewhere on the back end of the whole transaction. It's usually, I mean, listen, I, my preacher used to always say the devil don't have any happy old people. Uh, in other words, when you see people at the end of their life that have let the sin take root and take hold and have sway and have influence, you'll find it has left them wrecked and hollowed out and miserable. Uh, that cost was tacked on to the back end. It was rolled into the loan and you didn't see it until the tail end, but there's always a cost. And then I see his compromise. How did he make this uh, payment? The Bible says in verse 15, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The cost he requires will always be steep enough to take something from God in your life. It's not that the king of Assyria needed this much money. It's he wanted to make sure that he asked for so much that Hezekiah would have to rob it from the house of God to give it to him. You know something interesting I've learned about sin? We say to ourselves, I can commit this sin, I can get involved with it, but I'm not going to let it affect anything else in my life. Uh, we always, and don't act like you don't, we all are this way. We're delusional enough to believe when we get involved in sin that it's not going to get us out of church, it's not going to mess up our kids, it's not going to wreck our marriage. Here's what we're saying. We're saying, I got enough in the bank that I can cover it. But the cost of sin is always so high that it's going to cost you everything you've got. The first thing he did was he went and he stole out of the house of God. This is a king that made his mind up he was going to live right, and now he's robbing God. And anytime you give the devil place in your life, you're robbing God. Because you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. Part of the reason this world is so obsessed with this concept of collectivism and communal ownership over your soul, over your mind, over your money, and over your health and body is because it's trying to displace the place and role of God in the human life. i got news for you. I don't have the right to give away myself. I don't have the right to give anyone else the authority because that authority belongs to God. And God alone, I'm bought with a price. Hey, uh, listen, you want me? You're going to have to talk to him because he's the one that bought and paid for it. I see his compromise, he, he, uh, his cost. I see his confession. So Hezekiah, he starts off doing pretty good. In fact, this probably wouldn't have happened if he had not 
committed to serve God. Here's how it would have went otherwise. Rabshakeh and the Assyrian army would have rolled up and said, pledge fealty to the king of Assyria or we'll annihilate you. And Hezekiah would have said, sure, no problem. It's easy to serve the devil. It's not pleasant. I understand the way of the transgressors is hard in the sense that it brings heartache in our life. But I'm saying it takes no resolve to go the direction that the devil wants to lead you. So he goes and and he makes his mind up, I'm going to live for God. But then pretty soon uh, the enemy knocks at his door and he makes the mistake of compromising him. Well, what then happens in light of that? Because uh, the king of Assyria, he's not satisfied with what Hezekiah has given. He wants more because the devil will always want more. What he initially asked for will never be enough. He will always want more of your life, always want more of your walk with God, always want more of your family, always want more of your time. He comes and rolls up in his front door and says, we're here to take the whole thing. Now, what was his strategy? I want you to notice not only the resolve of the king, but I want you to notice the railing of this propagandist. Rabshakeh's sole purpose is to say, we don't want to shed blood. I'd sooner you give up what you have than us have to come and take it. Can I tell you a little a little secret? Can I tell you how this whole story ends, in fact? This ain't a secret. You can read it in your Bible. Uh, you'll find that Hezekiah ultimately makes a decision to trust God. He prays, God answers, and he makes a decision to trust the Lord. Did you know that then God sends an angel in the night that slays 185,000 Assyrians? Can I tell you the little secret the devil don't want you to know? The reason he's trying to talk you out of it is because he can't take it from you. The reason he's trying to talk it out of you is because if you make up your mind to live for God, He can't stop you from serving God. And so He's got to talk you out of it. Because if He can get you to just uh, cough it up, deliver it up, just of your own choice, alright, well, if this, is going to, if this is going to upset people, if this is going to make me unpopular, if this is going to hinder me in my, in my advancement, well, I'll just go ahead and give all that up, go the way the devil wants, then He's won. And let me say, it's the only way He can win. Now, how does He go about this? I want you to notice some strategies. And there's basically 78 things. Be patient. No, there's not that many. Don't don't get nervous. What did he do? Well, verse number 19, Rabshakeh said unto them, Speaking now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Let me say number one, his first strategy, the first horse that he gives you to ride is to forfeit your confidence in God. If he can get you to quit trusting God, then of course you're going to start trusting Him. If He can get you to quit trusting God and having confidence that the Lord is sufficient, that He's able, that though you may not be able, He is able to keep that which you've committed unto Him against that day. If He can get you to throw away your confidence, which the Hebrews writer says, have a great recompense of reward, then He's already won the battle. Now how did He do this? Well, notice the first way He did it. Whenever He spoke to him, He said in verse 20, Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, uh, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust on him. There's an interesting thing that's transpired here. The things that Rabshakeh says are fundamentally true. In Isaiah 30 and 31, the prophet has decried the children of Israel and Hezekiah for making a, an allegiance with Egypt and trusting Egypt to protect them rather than trusting God to protect them. You say, preacher, what's the distinction? Hezekiah had already repented of this and committed himself to trust God and to not trust Egypt. So why is Rabshakeh bringing this up? 
even though it is outdated information, he's dragging up the mistake that Hezekiah made and saying, don't you feel like a fool that you've trusted in Egypt? The reason we're going to overrun you is because you made a mistake in trusting Egypt in the first place. And now we have the upper hand. Can I say the first way he gets us to forfeit our confidence is by dredging up guilt in our life. Uh, Hezekiah had done something wrong. He had messed up. And in light of him messing up, the enemy shows up and says, now I've got you where I want you. Uh, the real danger in this is that basically the enemy doesn't have to lie to us when they accuse us of these things. There's a reason the Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. He's good at it. And can I be honest? If you're like me, you give him a lot of ammunition to work with. That's why it is so devastating to us. Is When it comes to bringing up guilt in our life, rarely does he ever have to lie about us. He has to lie about God, not about us, to bring guilt up in our life. So he starts dredging up guilt. He says, you've done messed up. You've done made a mistake. You can't expect God to deliver you because you were trusting in Egypt. Here's the truth. God's good and gracious and forgiving God. He had trusted in Egypt, but he had already made his mind up that Egypt wasn't the answer and he had turned to God. And the devil will come up to your life and say, you've done messed up. You've done made mistakes. Why would God use you? Why would God forgive you? Why would God love you? Look at what you've done. You didn't trust Him. You didn't live for Him. You say, preacher, what do we do? We remind Him that though He may remember it and though we may remember it, God don't remember nothing about it because He has chosen to put our sins away. Though the devil may be upset about it, though we may even still be grieved by it, God has moved past it and forgiven us of it by dredging up guilt. Number two, look down at verse number 29. We're jumping around a little bit, but verse 29, he says this, Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Syria. He says this, You're trusting God but your God's not powerful enough. He, he, he tried to forfeit his confidence or get him to forfeit his confidence by dredging up guilt, number two, by defaming God. He said, your God is weak. Your God is not powerful enough to deliver you from me. Uh, can I remind you, when we make up our mind and resolve ourselves to live for God, we're, I hope anyways, not resolving ourselves in our own strength. Uh, this is part of the reason I don't like the whole culture and concept of, of, of resolutions, of saying, well, I'm going to make... I'm going to make decisions just in and of myself. I'm just going to will myself to be better and to do better. It does take resolve to trust God. Don't misunderstand me. But we need to understand that that is approached from a perspective of weakness. It is not me saying I'm strong enough to serve God. It is me saying I'm too weak to serve God. And because I'm too weak to serve God, I'm going to stay close to Him and I'm going to lean on Him and I'm going to trust Him and I'm going to listen to Him and I'm going to follow Him because I'm not enough in and of myself. In other words, it is saying not that I'm enough, it's saying He's enough. Now, uh, Rabshakeh has already said that Israel's too weak. And so the next thing he has to do is try to attack God. Can I just refer you to the footnotes of this passage vis-a-vis uh, -vis the 185,000 dead Assyrians? Uh, if we want to know whether God's powerful enough, you just read a couple chapters ahead. Uh, God's powerful enough to keep us, to help us, to strengthen us. He is able. He tried by defaming God. Look at verse 33. He said this, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? 
Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand? Here's what he does. Uh, he tries to do this uh, by dredging up guilt and defaming God, but then by diabolical gloating. He says, just look at my resume. Look at all of the countries that I've left in rubble and in ashes and ask yourself if any of those gods were able to save them. Oftentimes, he will point to the brokenness in other people's lives. The devil will. He'll say this, those people were better people than you and look what I've done in their life. Why would you think you can live for God? Why would you think you can stand for God? Look what those other people have done and look how easily I laid them low. But here's the truth of the matter. Those other pagan gods didn't even factor into the equation because they weren't real anyway. They were a figment of their worshippers' imagination. And Hezekiah's answer is simple. Uh, yeah, big man knocking over wooden stone statues. But you've done showed up on the doorstep of the God of the universe. And this is a whole different ballgame. He tries to get us to forfeit our confidence. And if we're willing to not trust God, if we're willing to saddle up and ride that horse and give up on God, then the battle is already lost. Not only that, look back at verse 22. The first horse is the horse of forfeiting your confidence. The second is found in verse 22. He says this, But if ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that He whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now this is interesting. He's saying, You're trusting Jehovah, but you tore down all of His groves. You tore down all of His idols. He's angry at you. He's mad at you because you're a fanatic and you've gone too far and now you have upset Him. And that's why I'm here. Here's the second horse. He wants to get you to forsake your convictions. He wants to roll up on your doorstep and say, don't you think it was a little bit overkill when you tore down all those groves? Don't you think you were being a little fanatic when you break down all those images? You know, God doesn't like people that are confrontational after all. And you've upset a lot of people by tearing down these groves and these idols, Hezekiah. And probably what's happening here is you've gone too far. You've been a fanatic. You've been too strict. You've been too straight in what you've done. And now God's angry. And you say you're going to trust in God, but He's a God of love. And the way that you've been acting is not very loving, Hezekiah. You know, the devil will always come along and call Bible believers fanatics. Uh, listen, I, I, I want to be a fanatic in the world's eyes. We ought to strive to be it. If we're not, oh my, I'm, this is going to hurt me. My daddy used to say more than it's going to hurt you. If we're not a fanatic in a world this wicked, what does that say of our Christianity? If we are not living in such a way that the world can't figure out why we're living this way? In a world this wicked? Then what does that say about our Christianity? Very often the devil will roll up on your step and he'll say, don't you think you've been a little rigid, a little too harsh in, in, in the way that you've been living? I mean, listen, why can't you just relax? I mean, you're going to upset God uh, by being so rigid and so strict. After all, isn't God a God of love? And he, wouldn't He just want all of us to get along? No. God's chief fundamental focus is not us getting along. If He was, He wouldn't allow preaching in the house of God. If He was, He wouldn't allow Baptists in the house of God. His chief focus is not us getting along. Now, God doesn't want us to fuss and to fight over silly things and inconsequential things. God's not pleased with discord or conflict. But I'm saying His primary, His primary driving focus of what He's doing in our life is not to make us agreeable but rather it's to make us holy. 
So the devil will come up and say, you probably upset God with your rigidness, with your strictness, uh, with, with, with your closed-mindedness, with your fanaticism. You have upset God. And the world tells us the same thing. The world, listen, there, there's, there's crowds out there that, I, I mean, I don't know what it would take to be acceptable in their eyes. I mean, you'd literally have to be uh, stripped naked, involved in lewd, lascivious behavior, human sacrifice, possibly cannibalism. And they'd still say, is there some way we can make this more attractive? <laughs> Maybe we could loosen things up a little bit around here. Hey, listen, that, that's, that's a non-starter. Uh, instead, we ought to, uh, here's what Hezekiah could have, and I'm sure he did say in his heart, everything I did, I did because God commanded it. I trust God's Word, not the Word of this propagandist. And if God's Word said this is right, then that's enough for me. Not only to forsake your convictions, look at verse 24, he says this, How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This is amazing. Here is a pagan Assyrian that is saying to Hezekiah, you think I don't worship Jehovah? You think Jehovah didn't send me to this place? It has been foreordained of Jehovah that I come and destroy you because your cause is unrighteous and my cause is righteous. Here's the next horse that he saddles up for you. He tries to get you to forget your cause. He tries to get you to forget what this whole thing's all about. He tries to warp your concept of who God is and what God expects out of us to such a way. Listen, uh, uh, God on, on the sixth day made man in His image. And for 6,000 years since then, man's been trying to make God in His own image. And uh, modern day Christianity has almost yielded wholesale to this notion of a malleable God that can just be formed and reshaped in the image of whatever the worshiper is to such a degree uh, that even sinfulness, even iniquity is ascribed some sort of sanctity. It's given some sort of religious title. There's not a single atrocity that takes place in society today that there's not some man that calls it noble and calls it righteous. Uh, we have to go back to the truth of the Word of God to find out what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is untrue. And then once we know what truth is, we have to stand on it. There will always be somebody that calls your compromise Christianity. There will always be someone that comes along and ennobles you for doing what's wrong. We live in a day, probably one of the most destructive things that has ever entered the, the, the sphere of human experience is the social media realm that we live in today. Now, listen, and I've got one, right? I try to stay away from it as much as possible, but I've got one and, and I interact on it and I'm not fussing. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have one. I'm not, I'm saying that environment has created this sort of, this system where we live in a world of our own creation. To such a degree, we get to play God and decide who's a part of our world or not. Somebody says something you don't like, just block them, unfriend them, get rid of them. They don't even exist anymore. You ain't seen them in seven years anyway, so it ain't like you're going to bump into them. And you just sort of X them out of your life. And, and what it has created is an environment where the entire world exists at our pleasure. If people are, will agree with us, if they'll applaud us, if they will appreciate what we're doing, we allow them to live in our little kingdom. If they... Uh, disagree with us, if they withstand us, if they accuse something we've done as being wrong, we just X them out like a king, off with their head, and they no longer exist. And it has conditioned mankind to this notion 
a feeling as though the only people that love them are the people that praise them. That if anybody ever does anything short of clapping for whatever decision they're making, it must be because they're against them. I've heard preachers say it. I, I, I've heard them say, pay attention whenever you, whenever you succeed in life, pay attention to who's clapping and who's not. The people clapping are clapping because they're for you. Maybe, maybe it's that what they're seeing in your life may look like success to you, but it looks like sin to them and to the Word of God. And it could be they're not, they're not unhappy for you because they begrudge you or are jealous of you. They're unhappy for you because they believe what you're doing is wrong, it is destructive, is going to bring ruin and bring heartache and headache to your life. There will always be somebody in your life when you do wrong. There will always be somebody that will clap for you and say, oh, you're so noble. There will always lend a, a, an air of nobility to your behavior and try to get you to adjust what do we need to do in light of that? He tries to get us to forget what our cause is, to forget what is true, in so much that we would believe that this pagan general is coming in the name of the God of Israel. If he can get you to live in that sort of gray area of, of moral relativism that is so pervasive in society today, the idea that, well, what's right for you might not be right for me, what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. You know what that basically means? It means I'm going to live the way I want and I don't care what is true and what is not. He's trying to get you to forget your cause. Look at verse 26. This is amazing to me. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah under Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And talk not with us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said unto them, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? By the way, he had already said that he had earlier in the chapter. But now he said, Was I really sent to you to speak to you as the leaders of these people? He said, Hath he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Can I, can I boil down what he says to one simple statement? Hey, I'm here to help you. He says, Why would I not speak to them? They're the ones that are going to pay the price. And after all, I'm just here because I care. You know, the devil will always... Here's the next force. He feigns concern. He acts as though he cares about you. He acts as though he actually cares what happens to your life. This happened to our Lord and Savior. There were times when his friends and his family would come and try to pull him back and restrain him from ministry and from serving because they were worried about him. Uh, you know, here's the reality. The devil don't care about your life. He's not trying to get you to step away from God because He's worried for you. He's trying to get you to do it because He knows that manipulating you is the only way He can get you to do it. He can't make you. There is much today, and we just ought to be bold to say it. There is much today that is cast in a light of being reckless in terms of serving God that should not be cast in the light of being reckless. It's not reckless to serve God. It's not reckless. You listening? It's not reckless to go to church. It's not reckless to witness. It's not reckless to keep a testimony. Oh, I'm not saying it won't cut you lower in this world's esteem. I'm not saying no bad thing will ever happen to you. I'm not saying that danger isn't a part of life. I'm saying this, you'd be far better to serve God with whatever danger that may entail than you would be to wave the white flag and quit living for God and spend out your days just trying to take the safest possible route. He says, I'm just here because I care about you. I'm here because I just don't want you to wind up 
uh, dead. Instead, I'm here, but the reality is he doesn't care. And then what's the last horse that he gives us? Look down at verse 31. He says, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his sister, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, olive, and of honey, that you may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Here's what he says. Here's the last horse to find a compromise. He says, just come out, give me a little gift, and everything's going to be fine. All you have to do is just come out, give a present, maybe bow the knee, maybe kiss the ring, and then everything will go back to normal. Everything will be absolutely fine. I'm about, I'm about to... Mm. Everything will go back to normal. Everything. Don't you want normal? Everything will go back to normal. All you have to do, just bow the knee, kiss the ring, give a little gift, and everything will just go back to normal like it always was before. It'll all go back to normal. Got a few questions about that. Why does a man that has all this land and money and wealth want a present of me in the first place? It's like those scam calls they give you where there's $1,500 waiting for you in an account. It was bestowed to you by a new government program that's for people in exactly your situation. And all we need is $75.95 for shipping and handling of the gift card, and then you can access that money. You know what you say to that? Just take it out of the total balance. Send it to me anyway. And you know what? Keep 25 extra dollars just for your trouble, all right? Isn't that always funny, you know? I got all this to give you, but Ken, I just need a present first. I just need a present first. That interesting, isn't it interesting? He says, I'm going to take you away to a land that's like your own land. If you're going to take me to a land that's like my own land, how about just my own land? Let me just, let me just keep it, right? Let me just, how about I just stay where I'm at and you go back where you came from? Instead, he says, no, just trust me. I'll take you a land that's like your own land. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, all the devil's diamonds are plastic and all of his nickels are plug nickels. All of his pearls are fake. Everything the devil promises you. It always involves up front a little concession on your part. But then I, I promise you, if you'll, if you'll bow the knee, kiss the ring, give a little gift, everything will be great from here on out. He says, you don't have to come all the way. Just give a little bit. There's always the horse of compromise. Well, I'm done preaching, but since I got all this time left over, let's look at these next few thoughts. What was the response of the people? How'd they respond? Verse 36 tells us they responded in the right way. The Bible says, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word. Preacher, what do I do when the devil rolls up with a whole stable full of horses? A whole stable full of excuses why I ought to give up and quit serving God and quit being so rigid in my standards and quit being so, so holy in, in, in my standards and, and why I ought to just take it easy and quit living for Him and quit serving Him. Why shouldn't I listen? Or what should I do in response to that? Well, notice number one, they responded with silence. They didn't speak. You know why? They didn't have nothing to say. It, it is a great truth that I am still learning that when you ain't got nothing to say, you ought to just hush. 
I've not learned it yet this morning. Somebody say amen to that. But I'm still trying to learn it. You say, preacher, what should we do when the devil comes tempting me? Ignore him. Ignore him. You see, if you start, if you start entertaining what he's saying, that's what he needs from you in order to get to you. The best thing to you is pretend like you ain't even there. But preacher, sometimes that temptation's strong. I know, ignore it. But preacher, sometimes, I mean, what, what the flesh says makes sense. I know, ignore it. But preacher, sometimes the things the world says are so sensible. I know, ignore it. It's a matter of trusting the king instead of trusting the propagandist. Why did they do that? Because that's what the king told them. They didn't understand it. Didn't have to understand it. The king's commandment was saying, answer him not. So they met him with silence, but they met the true king with obedience. They said, we're going to do this because it's what God expects out of us. Preacher, how can I hold the line? How can I thread the needle? How can I maintain? Just obey him. Just obey him. I'm going to make this Christian life real simple for you. Uh, Mary gave us all the advice that we really need. When she looked at those servants in John chapter 2, you know what she said? She said, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Do it. You don't have to figure it out and have the secret sauce and be a superstar Christian. Just whatsoever he saith to you, do it. They didn't answer. You know why? Because the king said not to answer. They didn't argue. You know why? Because the king said not to argue. They didn't taunt. You know why? Because the king said not to answer. And all they knew was the king's right and this person is wrong. They met with uh, obedience with the king. Not only that, they responded with repentance. Verse 37, the Bible says, Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joel the son of Asaph, the recorder to Hezekiah. Notice this phrase, with their clothes rent. In ancient Israel, when a person was in a spirit disposition of abasement, of humility, and of repentance, they would rend their clothes and cover themselves with ashes. You know the first thing they did? They said, if I've done anything wrong, I'm going to get it right in my life. They did not say, I'm going to try to compromise to make the enemy go away. They said, instead, I'm going to try to get closer to God and trust in Him more. Not only did they meet it with repentance, but they made it with dependence. Verse number 7, here's what they did. They went to Hezekiah with the clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Now, I understand Hezekiah was an earthly man. He was a finite, fallible man. and I'm not trying to draw too distinction of a, too distinct of a picture here. But can I just remind you that he was the king. They didn't answer because the king said don't answer and that king was Hezekiah. What do they do then when this message is given? They don't talk to the propagandist. They instead go to the true king and tell him. So preacher, what do I do in these times? It's very simple. Don't entertain the devil. Search your own life and go to God about it. Do what you know is right. Obey the king. Don't entertain what the devil says to you. Search your own life and go depend on the Lord. And you'll find this, you can just let them horses pass by. You don't have to get on them and ride. The reason he offered them is that was the only way he was going to get them out of that city. Another few days, and there was 185,000 dead Assyrians, and God's city was still left untouched. So the question is not, can he defeat you? The question is, will you surrender? Or will you trust the Lord? Let's bow together with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, the musician will come and play. The altar is open. Any of y'all had any of them horses brought by your house lately? Some of them excuses that the devil comes along and, and whispers in your ear. It says, why are you being so rigid in your convictions? Why are you being so fanatic in your devotion? 
why, why, why are you still living this way? Why are you still doing it? Nobody else is doing it. Nobody else is living this way. Don't you think everybody would understand? Has he rode by with any of them horses lately? Say, preacher, I just need strength. I need help to resist the devil. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus.